Good morning, all of you joining at home. It's good to have you join us today. Uh, as Kirsten said, I'm Tom, and uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Hope Church. And over the last few uh, months, actually for almost a year now, we've been working through the Bible book of Luke, which is one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. It's like a biography of Jesus, his life, his teaching, and his death and resurrection. And we have a couple more weeks uh, before Christmas. We're going to be in this uh, book, and then we're going to take a break over Christmas and into the new year. And then there will still be another eight chapters of the book to do. And uh, we're just loving working through, seeing what Jesus taught, seeing what he did, and falling more and more in love with him. And today we're going to be in chapter 14 of the book of Luke. And we're going to read that, and then I'm going to pray. Um, But before we do that, I want to give a little context to uh, what we're going to read. We're going to see that Jesus is the partying saviour. And Jesus in this story is once again at a party. He's at a dinner party with some Pharisees. These were the religious elite of his day. These were the guys that um, they, they loved the places of honor. They loved it when spe- people spoke highly of them. They had laws of their own that they added to the Old Testament laws to stop people going anywhere near breaking the laws of God. They were very pious people, and they made religion a very heavy matter indeed. These weren't very joyful people, and they often were at war with Jesus, really, and they wanted to take him down. Anyway, they've invited Jesus to a party, and at this party, a guy has come by who has dropsy or edema, uh, which is a condition where you get loads and loads of swelling in your body. And this guy comes by, and uh, the, the Pharisees are really waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. I actually suspect that they'd even tip this guy off to come by, because it's the, it's the Sabbath, it's Saturday for them, Shabbat, which was a day where no work was permitted. And the Pharisees kind of saw healing even as work. And so they wanted to see, is Jesus going to heal this guy on the Sabbath? And we, what we see is that Jesus kind of sees right through what they're thinking, and he says, If you guys have a cow uh, or or even a child and they fall into a pit on the Sabbath, you're going to pull them out, right? And so he sees exactly what they're thinking here, and then he heals the guy, and the guy goes on his way. That's the context. So it's already kind of awkward for them because they don't know how to respond to Jesus. It's a bit of a mic drop moment. They've got no comeback to Jesus. So that's the context of what we're about to read. So we're going to read from verse 7 onwards. Now, when Jesus noticed that all who had come to dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then he turned to his host, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will repay you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied with this story, A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. 
When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just got married so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, There is still room for more. So his master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will, even, will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we invite you to come and do a work in our hearts as we unpack this passage together. Please help us not just to get head knowledge, but to have heart change. I pray that today we would meet with you and encounter the truth of who you are and what you've got for us uh, as we unpack this passage. Amen. Amen. So in this narrative, Jesus is at a party. And as he's at this party, he proceeds to tell two parables. These are like stories with a meaning that are about parties. There's something going on here. He talks about firstly a wedding party, and then he talks about a banquet, a great feast, a huge party. Jesus really is the partying saviour. Now, there's three statements in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that begin like this. The Son of Man came. So Jesus is often referred to as the Son of Man. Sometimes he's referred to as the Son of God. And there's three statements in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life that begin, the Son of Man came. The first one is this. The Son of Man came not to, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second is this. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And the third one is, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Now, the first two statements are statements of purpose. What Jesus came for. He came to seek and save that which is lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for us. Now, the third is a statement of how, a statement of his uh, his method, how did he come? Well, he came eating and drinking. Jesus spent a lot of time eating and drinking. He did evangelism. He, he, he gave people good news in the context of meals. He discipled people. Uh, he, he helped them to grow in godliness in the context of meals. He, his, his mission was outworked around a table with some grilled fish and some bread and a jug of wine. That's how Jesus did it. He it's this, this, this gospel account of Luke that we're working through is full of stories of Jesus at meals. In fact, most of the teaching takes place when Jesus is either at a meal, he's going to a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Jesus really is the partying saviour. This is something for us to think about, isn't it? About how we live our lives. When we consider the kind of lives that we want to live after this pandemic is over. When we see our saviour, when we see our Lord Jesus spending a lot of time around the dinner table, spending a lot of time at parties, attending parties, hosting parties. Now, we have 21 meals a week, usually. Now, maybe if you're working from home, you've probably added some more meals in as well. But if we use just a third of those to eat with someone else or to spend time with someone else, then we really could see some incredible things happening. 
Because many, many, many of the miracles Jesus performed, many of the really incredible conversations he had with people and the deliverance he brought to people were in the context of parties and meals. And so when this is over, should we not be the ones hosting parties? Should we not be the ones opening up our homes and saying, hey, come on and let's celebrate? Should we not be those who are always looking for an excuse to throw a party? I've got a friend called Rachel who's in this church and she's always looking for excuses to host parties. Whether that be the FA Cup final, whether that be Christmas time, whether that be the Eurovision Song Contest, she has parties. She wants people to come and celebrate. Should we not be that kind of people? Should we not be a people who, like our saviour, love to party? Should we not be those who, at Easter time, at Christmas time, during big football matches, whatever it might be, should we not be those who say, hey, come to our home, come to our house? Or those that accept the invites of others to go and be with people? Because as we live our life before God, as we live our all out for him, in the context of, of, of spending our lives with other people, we will see some incredible things happening. So this is one thing that we might draw out from this, but there's more than an example here. There's something else much deeper going on when we see Jesus at meals and parties. Did he really just love food? I, I think there's something much more profound going on here. I believe that Jesus' feasts are a picture of the kingdom of God. The feasts and parties that Jesus uh, hosts and attends and the teaching that he gives which mention feasting and food are actually to point us to a new world, a new reality, a new outlook. He didn't come just preaching an ideology. He came and actually uh, lived this out. He lived out a life of, of partying because he wanted to point people to an ultimate reality. The meals that he partakes in are actually the real thing in miniature. The real thing in miniature, that is the coming feast of the kingdom of God. Now prior to Jesus' coming, and indeed afterwards, the Bible is full of references to a final day. A final day where God will have the ultimate victory. And there's a place in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 25, which speaks of this. And again, it speaks of this great final feast in Revelation 19. And that's where we're going to finish up later on. This is what it says. On this mountain, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. Some of you are thinking about your roast dinner already. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people the Lord has spoken. In that day the people will proclaim, This is our God! We trusted him, and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation that he brings. And what has preceded that chapter is a chapter of gloom and of judgment and of misery. It's not good. And then there's this hope that springs forth, looking forward to a day when God's going to remove from this earth the shadow of death. He's going to remove all of the tears and the misery, and there's going to be a great feast. And I believe that what's going on as Jesus spends his time feasting with people, 
is that he's pointing them towards this ultimate feast. The people that he would have spent time with, by and large, were people who were, were entrenched in the Bible. They, they, they understood that there's going to be a great feast. They understood Isaiah 25, that one day God's going to bring it all to uh, a climax in, 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 in bringing the old way of things to an end and bringing in a new glorious future. And in Jesus feasting with people and in, and in teaching about feasting, he's pointing people to the reality of the coming feast. And right at the end of the Bible, as I've already mentioned, Revelation, we see, uh, we, we kind of get in on a vision of a guy called John, who is one of Jesus' disciples, one of his best friends. And in his very old age, he has this vision. And in this vision, we get to see uh, something of the unseen spiritual battle that is raging. And we see that Jesus ultimately has the victory and comes and makes all things new. And there's this glorious picture right at the end in chapter 19 of Jesus and his bride, the church, coming together and being united, and there being the most incredible wedding reception. Some of you have had weddings this year. I think we've had seven marriages in Hope Church this year, and all of you have had to restrict the numbers at your weddings. All of you have had to make uh, adjustments to make it COVID secure. This is going to be the most almighty party with no restrictions on numbers and no uh, careful seating arrangements so that we don't have to be too close to each other. This is going to be glorious. And this is ultimately where we're going to come back to today. But I want to share three things from this passage that uh, I would like us just to observe and to take to our heart. The first is this, that the party invite is wide open. We see in verse 20 in this parable, Jesus says, A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. Now, I don't know if you use social media, but if you have for any number of years, the likelihood is you will have made a faux pas at some point on social media. When I started at university, Facebook was brand new. It had just come out. And as I was meeting people at university, they said, hey, are you on Facebook? And I said, no, I must get onto Facebook. So I started an account. And as I uh, clicked on Facebook and it started typing in my details, it asked me if I was interested in, in men or women. Now, I thought it was asking me if I was male or female. And so I accidentally clicked that I was interested in men. And as I got to know people on campus over the next couple of weeks, I was actually propositioned by a couple of guys who asked me out on a date. And I thought, what kind of vibes am I giving off here? I don't know. And uh, someone had to gently point out to me, well, it says on your profile, Tom, that you're interested in men. So I very quickly rectified that. Not too much confusion caused. Now, that social media faux pas doesn't begin to compare to the social media faux pas that a young lady called Mirtha Weithus, a teenager in the Netherlands, con uh, committed a few years ago. As she planned a quiet celebration of her 16th birthday party, she wanted to just have a, a small party with a small group of friends. And as is customary, she put her event on Facebook, but she made one mistake. She failed to make it a private event. And as people started to get wind of this party, it spiralled out of control. Details began to circulate and a trickle of acceptances became a flood and the invite was seen by over 240,000 people and 30,000 people said that they were going to come. Now thankfully not all of those 30,000 people did come 
but over 5,000 people came to her birthday party in the town a size of Woodbridge in a small town and caused over a million euros worth of damage as it turned into a riot and it made the news, made many headlines. The town's mayor said, an innocent invitation on Facebook for a party led to serious rioting, destruction and plundering in the streets of Haran. Now here's the good bit that will restore your faith in humanity. Another invite was put out on Facebook and people were invited to come and clear up the streets of Haran and hundreds of people came from all over the country to come and put the town right again. But party invites can spiral out of control and go very wrong. But when it comes to God's kingdom, God has intended for this to spiral. He has intended for this to go out. And as we heard from Tim last week, this message of the kingdom, this invite to the kingdom of God has gone out to the nations. And every year, year upon year upon year, the kingdom of God has grown. And almost every nation now, there are people who have come into God's kingdom And God intends for it to continue to spiral and grow. This invite is wide open. Just as the man in the parable throws the invite wide open, so Jesus is is throwing the invite out really wide. And right now, the party, what does it look like? Well, it looks like feasting with Jesus in this life. There is an ultimate feast to come. There is an ultimate glorious party to come. But in this life, It looks like feasting with him through the ups and downs of life. Feasting on his goodness. Drinking deeply of the Holy Spirit. Rejoicing in the fact we are God's children. It it, it really is possible to feast even amongst the, the, the difficulties we encounter in life, pandemic or otherwise. There is a feast right now, but on into eternity, it looks like wonderful, wild partying with the greatest wine and food and music and company and Jesus at the center of it all. And this is a wide open invitation. The Pharisees who were present at the meal, they kind of thought that the invite was just for them. They kind of thought, well, if, if this is a Messiah coming, then we're surely going to be at the top of the list. We're surely going to be right at the top of his agenda when it comes to invitation to his kingdom. And they resented the fact that Jesus spent time with the lowly. They resented the fact that Jesus spent time with those who were prostitutes or those who were tax collectors, with those who were sick and who were now healed, but they had been outcast because of their sickness. They resented this about Jesus. They would have felt that they should be right at the top of the invite list, not anyone else. And these Pharisees would have prayed each day, God, I thank you that you didn't make me a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. And so they, they really did consider that they were the special ones. They felt they knew who would be on top of the invite list. And yet Jesus showed with his life and with his words that the invite is wide open. Whatever your background, whatever your failure, whatever your level of education, whatever your health situation, the invite is for you. He shows it with his life. He shows it with his words. The invite is wide open. The Pharisees were the ones who took the places of honor at the feasts. They thought, well, hey, we're well educated. We're men. We're, we're pious. We're religious. We, we're quite holy. We deserve the seat of honor at the table. 
And Jesus is actually laying to them quite a rebuke. He, he, he drops an awkward grenade into this situation and says, don't seek honor for yourself. Seeking honor for yourself from men is actually a sign of unbelief. It's a sign that you don't believe that God's honor of you is actually paramount. Truth faith is, is more about honor from God than it is about honor from men. And it's in this awkward moment that one of the Pharisees does, does exactly what I would have done and tries to sort of move the conversation along. He wants to get away from the awkwardness and he says, oh Jesus, it's, how good it's going to be to be invited to, the, to the, the, king, the, the feast in the kingdom of God. He tries to kind of move it on from the awkwardness, but then Jesus kind of doubles down on this awkwardness and says, no, there's going to be people who will make excuses. The second thing I want to draw out having looked at the fact that the party invite is wide open, is I want to look at the excuses that are made. Surprisingly, people reject the invitation to this great feast. And they find all kinds of reasons to not come along. This was sadly true of many in Jesus' day. It says in John chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Many in Israel said, no, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. But it's true of many, many thousands of people today who, who, who receive the invite but who have reasons to not come along and these uh, reasons given are representative to be honest they represent many many people the first couple of reasons were about business the first says hey I've just bought a field and I need to go and inspect it and therefore I can't come along the second says I've just bought five oxen and I need to go and just make sure they're okay and I can't come to the wedding these are just normal things. They're not massively evil things. These people aren't saying, hey, I don't want to come to the feast because I want to go and do something really evil. They're not wanting to do that. They just wanted to get on with the normal things of this life. And yet these are the kind of things that make us so preoccupied and busy that we neglect the greater invitation, which is the feast with Jesus. The greatest adversary of love for God are sometimes his good gifts. Sometimes his good gifts actually get in the way, and we focus more on the good gifts than we do on the giver. The second type of excuse seems to be even more reasonable. It's about relationships. This guy's just got married. He wants to enjoy his honeymoon. He says, I've just got married, and so I can't come. The Bible says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Sex is described as a good gift to be enjoyed within marriage. It's a, it's a good thing. And yet it can become an ultimate thing when we think, I, I can't give my all to Jesus. I can't enjoy a uh, relationship with God in this life because what will my wife think? Or what will my girlfriend think? Or It's not just wives here. It's husbands, it's sons, it's daughters, it's friends. I, I can't give my all. I can't attend this feast because what will they think? I, I've got to give my all to them first. These things seem reasonable, don't they? But good gifts can become our excuses. Let's not let the love that we enjoy here below be an excuse to neglect the love from above. Jesus isn't just talking about fields and cows and marriage. He knows that we can all tend to prefer the life that we have more than the life he's inviting us into. So what's your excuse? What's been holding you back from coming to this feast? What's been holding you back from coming to Jesus? 
as Nick will unpack for us next week, there's a great invitation before us to this banquet. It's free. There's salvation for you that you cannot earn. You cannot earn God's love. You cannot earn his salvation. And yet, in in accepting this invite, there is actually a cost. That sounds so contradictory. But Jesus says to us, he wants us to take up our cross and follow him. That means that we actually die to some desires. We die to some ambition. We die to some things in this life. There's actually a cost. We're to put him and his invite first. And that's only possible. That's only possible when we live with the great feast in mind. When we live for the party. Most of us, we find it difficult to, to really want heaven. We think, well, I don't... I'm, yeah, if I, that, that will come at the end of my life, but I, I really, really like what I have right now. And we think, I don't really want to, I don't want to get there. And yet, all the things that we're drawn to in this world, when we, when we finally get our hands on them, they are actually ultimately unsatisfactory. There are all kinds of things in this world that, that offer to give us satisfaction, that offer to give us fullness of life. But when we grasp them, we find actually they didn't live up to the promise. And C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel and no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the very best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in reality. And there's, there's three ways of dealing with this, C.S. Lewis says. The first is that when we, when we find that the thing that we had put our hopes in doesn't satisfy, we think, well, maybe there was something wrong with that woman I married. I need to go and find another one. So if it's a relationship, well, we just move on to another one. That will satisfy or that career doesn't really do it for me, it's not fulfilling me, so, so I move on to another one. Or that holiday, it was okay, but as soon as I get back, I'm booking another one because that next one's really going to give me the peace that I crave. That's the first way of doing it. It's just kind of moving on from one thing to the next. The second way of dealing with it is just to become miserable and accept that, uh, re- kind of repress that desire for anything beyond this world, repress that desire for satisfaction, become miserable and think, well, it's never really going to happen. And you not only become miserable, but you become superior. And you look at others and think, oh, they're so foolish and naive, thinking they can actually be happy in this life, thinking they can actually have satisfaction in this life. You kind of repress it. And thirdly, there's a Christian way, C.S. Lewis says. And he says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was, not, I was actually made for another world. I'll just repeat that. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly pleasures were not meant to satisfy you. They were only meant to arouse in you a longing for something far greater. There's so many good gifts. We're not to despise the earthly blessings that God gives us. But we don't mistake them for something else. We don't mistake them for for which they are only an echo or a mirage of the real thing. We must keep alive in ourselves a desire for our true home, for our true destiny that we will not find until after death. 
We mustn't let our yearning for heaven get snowed under. We mustn't let our yearning for heaven be overturned by the things of this life. We make it our objective in life to press on to that feast, to press on to our true home and to help others to do the same. So let's get rid of just any notions that we're going to sit on clouds playing harps. (laughs) There's imagery in the Bible that helps us and should help us to see that this is is going to be so glorious. And it was imagery that might have helped people back then a little bit to think this is going to be so grand and royal and glorious. It's going to be far from boring. Let's not be be, uh, unhelpfully kind of influenced by cartoon depictions of chubby babies with little arrows that they're firing around. No, this is going to be a new creation without blemish, without the shadow of death hanging over it. And Jesus at the center of it all. I want you to just picture looking into Jesus' eyes at that great feast. I want you to picture being captivated by him. All this other glorious stuff around you, but just thinking, wow, he, he is even better than I imagined. He's even better than I expected. Jesus is at the center of it all. And, and the, the reason that heaven is good is because we'll know him in his fullness there. We'll see him face to face. For now, we just kind of see in a mirror like dimly. We just see kind of a, a dim reflection, but n- we will see him face to face. And it's going to be glorious. Let's not let... Let's not allow our, our longing for heaven be, to be snowed under by other things. Let's live with a longing for heaven in our hearts. The universe is going to be rinsed clean and restored to sparkling brightness and glory. We're going to have new bodies without pangs and pains. We're going to have new bodies without acne and arthritis. And Jesus is going to be there. And Dane Ortland, in his wonderful book called Gentle and Lowly, he says this, God's heart for his people is building toward a crescendo as the generations roll by, preparing to explode onto human history at the end of all things. Our joyous, restored humanity will surge forward with such nuclear energy that the creation itself will erupt in raucous hymns of celebration. This is the party for which the created order is on the edge of its seat in eager anticipation. So let's dream. Let's let's drink deeply of this hope. Let's have it in our hearts and our minds. As As we think more of the next life, as we place our hope more in the life that is to come... It will actually prove us to, it will actually uh, lead to us being more effective in this life. Those who have, who, have, who have rejoiced in the hope that is to come have been the most effective in this life. The, the apostles who took the, the gospel to the known world and led to ultimately the conversion of the Roman Empire, they thought most about the next life. Those evangelicals who were so uh, influential in bringing the slave trade to an end in this nation a few hundred years ago, they thought most about the next life. The leaders of the civil rights movement a few decades ago in the US thought most about the next life. That actually, it's as we, as we hope in eternity, it leads us to throw aside some of the distractions in this world and focus on the real deal. And focus in on the hope that we have. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown into. If you aim at earth, you will get neither. 
set your mind on heaven, and you will not seek the seat of honor in this life. You will not seek the praise of men in this life. Because actually one day you will, seat, you will be seated in a seat that is a seat of far greater honor than anything you could know in this life. You might end up being an advisor to a, a, royal, uh, a member of the royal family. You might end up being an advisor to a powerful politician. Or you might get to mix it with footballers or whatever. And you think, I found the seat of honor. It doesn't even begin to compare to the seat of honor that you will know at that table. And so we don't live for the seat of honor in this life. We, we live with heaven in mind. We live lives of humility. We recognize that we are actually the spiritually poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And we've been invited in and we haven't earned it. And that leads our hearts to seek to bring in others who aren't pious, proud people, but who just know my life is a mess. and I need hope. I need Jesus. That's our joy in this life. And we invite others in. And the, the biggest part of our invite is actually the way we live our lives. Of course it comes to words and, and, and inviting people to see Jesus. But the biggest reason that people come to know Christ is Christians. Do you want to know the biggest reason people don't come to Christ? It's Christians. As we, as we live our lives with our hope fixed on eternity and not on the things of this earth, we will be actually making an invite to people. If we, if we live our lives thinking, the only thing I need in this life is to get a boyfriend or a girlfriend and get married, then we're actually betraying the fact that, that, that our hope is in something which we think will satisfy that is not God. If we just live our lives for getting bigger and better homes, bigger and better cars, whatever it might be, then we're betraying the fact that we think our, our hope of satisfaction in this life is in, is in material things. If we live our lives obsessed with politics, always just consumed with, oh, if only so-and-so was in power, if only so-and-so, uh, we actually betray the fact that we think that the world's hope is in men. But actually, the world's hope is not in politicians, it's in one person, that's Jesus, and the feast that he invites us to now, and the feast that we will enjoy with him in eternity. So, so we live with, with heavenly minded, we live heavenly minded, and we invite others as we live lives that are focused in on Jesus, not distracted by other things, not putting our hope in other things, we invite others to the party. All of these things that I've mentioned have their place, but they, they find their rightful place when we have a longing in our heart for that day, for that party, where the food will be glorious, where the wine will be flowing, and where Jesus will be there. The hope, the glory of heaven. Finally, God wants his house to be full. He wants his house to be full. Some of you gatherers, maybe mums or grandmothers, are fretting about what is Christmas going to be like. Am I going to be able to have my clan together? Am I going to be able to enjoy a big roast dinner? Listen, I relate. I love that. I love having lots of people together. I love church being full of people and gathering together to worship. I love that. But listen, no one wants a full house more than God. No, he wants his house to be full. He wants his house to be full of millions and millions of people who have come to hope in him. So let's throw out the party invite far and wide. Let's, as I said earlier, let's be those who actually party in this life and invite others to the ultimate party. Now we're going to finish our time together by taking bread and wine. Um, this is not meant to be like this. There's about 
10, 12 of us here just making this happen. We've had communion already before this service. This is supposed to be a meal that we do together. It's not right, really, that we're doing it scattered. But the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to church that he was serving, he said, I'm with you in spirit. And in these strange times, we're together in spirit. And I want you to picture, just as we take the bread and the juice or wine, whatever you have in your home, I want you to picture hundreds of people from your church family. I want you to picture millions of people the world over, actually, who are your wider church family. I want you to picture these people and picture the great feast that is coming our way. And this meal that we have of bread and wine was always meant to point people to the greater reality. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22 very quickly as we come to close. If the band can come and be ready to lead us in a final song, that will be, that'll be great. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus, says, I have, Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You note that? This meal of bread and wine that he shared with his disciples, this is going to be fulfilled one day in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. So where we are right now in our homes, why don't you enjoy this wine and just know, one day you're going to see Jesus raising a glass to you. (laughs) You're going to see Jesus, the risen king, raising a glass to you. Then he took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. He took some bread, he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Why don't you right now just take that bread now. Remember Jesus' body broken for you. Remember that he, his body on that cross was broken for you. And he took another cup of wine after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. This bread and this wine, we're remembering Jesus on the cross for us, dying in our place, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. And we're remembering that one day we're going to eat with him in the kingdom of God. I'll just finish now with Revelation chapter 19. This verse that I've been referring to, verse 6. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words that come from God. 
Let's finish by praying, shall we? And the band are going to lead us in a final song. Lord, we praise you that you on the cross, your body was broken and your blood was spilt that we might know complete forgiveness. That we might not know just forgiveness and pardon, but we might actually be restored into full relationship with our maker. That we might know God as our father. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did that for us. We deserve what you received. And we receive what you deserve. Lord, you deserve the highest honor. And we've now been given the highest honor. We've been given a place in God's family. We've been given a seat at his table. We've been given a glorious hope and a bright future. And I pray right now that you would infuse us with hope. Lord, not hope in a vaccine. Lord, not hope in a new normal, but hope of a glorious future with you forever. I pray that you would come and do that in our hearts right now. I pray, Lord God, that we would live for the party. We would live for the party that we will know with you one day. I ask you, Father, come and do something profound in my heart. I need it, Lord. Would you do that in the hearts of my brothers and sisters watching? Lord, I pray for anyone who doesn't yet know you, for anyone who hasn't accepted this invite, that right now they would see all the other, other excuses I could give. I, I, I just need to lay those down and make Jesus number one. I need to receive this invite, this free invite. Let it be, Lord, that we see many, many people coming and feasting on your goodness with us in the months to come. I want to pray that we'd see baptisms in the months to come. Many, Lord, that we'd see many people saying, hey, I've once gone after the other things of this life, some of them plain evil, some of them just normal, but I've made them the ultimate thing. I pray, Lord God, that you would... Uh, Let us see many, many people coming to know you in the months to come. We baptize them and rejoice with them. In Jesus' name.